Canucks Central Wednesday. It's Dan Riccio and Satyar Shaw. We are a presentation of Grip Auto and Tire. Quality service, friendly advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. We'll have uh, lots on the Canucks and Blues rematch as the day goes on. Don Taylor is going to join us later this hour. Kevin Woodley to kick off our number two. It's an overrated, underrated Wednesday for the podcast, so make sure you're subscribing, leaving reviews. That way you never miss an edition of the show. The pregame will fire up just after 6 o'clock. Sat, what's happening? Chilling, man. A beautiful, sunny Vancouver spring afternoon, man. Uh, How is it like in Toronto? Is it cold? Uh, Yeah, it's not great. (laughs) You're really missing out, man. You're really missing out. I'm kind of missing cherry blossoms and sunshine and the seawall. I mean, I didn't get to take the Beamer out for a rip this week while I'm I'm here, so. I know, but the good thing is, with you being out of town on a sunny day, uh, the pedestrians (laughs) on the seawall are safe for one sunny afternoon, so that's a good thing. People can enjoy... The seaside walk without having to be run over by a BMW. Yeah, no, no doubt. It's uh, it's uh, freezing rain uh, here in uh, in Toronto. So. Well, you got to see the soccer match. You got to see Canada advance. So you have that going yes. for you. We'll see. Uh, we got a big bachelor party weekend for uh, my cousin, whom I'm the best man for. So uh, we'll, we'll see if we get some decent weather before the the weekend. Hits. Okay. So, so as a best man, what responsibility do you have? Like, what's your number one responsibility? Is it to make sure he gets to the wedding or make sure he has a good time <laughs> on his bachelor party? Like, what's your chief uh, responsibility? I think uh, I think good time at the bachelor party is is probably chief responsibility, right? I mean, I say so, but if you want to maintain that relationship and make sure that it works with him and his wife, you may <laughs> want to ensure he gets there on time. That might be important. All right, all right, fair, fair enough. Uh, well, no, that'll happen. Uh, that that definitely will happen. We'll make sure to be there on time, but uh, also got to make sure the uh, the vibes are good. On, uh, on Bachelor Party Night as well. Uh, as for the Vancouver Canucks, it's been an interesting uh, day, Sad. A lot of interesting notes coming around about mm-hmm. the team. Uh, Jason Dickinson back at practice, uh, as is Tucker Pullman and Kyle Burrows. A lot of uh, talk around Connor Garland and his recent uh, scoring slump. Nils Hoaglander potentially out for the rest of the season. So, there's a lot of uh, discussion points around some of the supporting cast. And I, I do want to start with Hoaglander because I think his season, you know, we've we've debated it a lot. It's been talked about how he has had that sophomore slump to a certain extent. And now his season is most likely done with the injury suffered uh, a week or two ago. And it kind of gives us a chance to assess where he's at and what the future is for Nils Hoaglander. Um, how do you feel his second season went? Is it overblown the struggles? Was it not uh, talked about enough? Obviously it was, but where are we at with Nils Hoaglander? Well, I don't think it's a stretch to say he had a disappointing sophomore season. It doesn't mean he was bad. It doesn't mean you should be worried about him long term. But he clearly took at least half a step back from his rookie season. And that is not too uncommon for players in their sophomore year. But the hope is that a guy at least replicates what he did the rookie season. Or if he doesn't, he's just slightly below. But you'd love to have a guy take a step forward. He he definitely took at least half a step back, if not a full step back, after his rookie season, right? So I think 
it's fair to say it was a disappointing season, but don't let that discourage you when it comes to his ultimate potential and the fact that he still does a lot of things which are hard to do that you can't teach. And ultimately, he's still a guy you want to work with to see if you can get the most out of. It's um, it, it's easy to fall into hyperbole, right, with uh, where a player's at. And it's, you know, we we try to be honest about a player's play, but also hope that you understand it doesn't mean we want every guy shipped out of town at the first sign of any kind of struggle. I think it would be a, a mistake to move on from Nils Hoaglander. Uh, it, and that discussion is not one I've really wanted to entertain too much. You know, we know teams will call and that's always going to be a part of the business, but it's it's hard to imagine that uh, you find a player with, you know, upside might be the wrong word, but I do think there's a lot of value in a player like Nils Hoaglander, who I don't know is ever going to be a big-time scorer or anything like that, Sat, but there's just a lot of elements to his game that I really, really like and I find can be a very valuable piece to a team that, expects to be pretty good in the next couple of years in that middle six, top six kind of role, mm-hmm. depending on where the fit really is. And if that fit is with Elias Pettersson, all the power to him. But I think what Nils Hoaglander had to really go through this year is understand, you know, if I'm going to be a player that's a winning player on a winning team, there's things I have to round out about my game that just might help bring out the things I'm really good at even more often. We spend a lot of time talking about what players aren't, right? But I think it always it's always good to start from a point of what is this player? And it's very clear that Niels Hoaglander is a middle six NHL forward, right? Like that's what yeah. he's going to be for a long time in the National Hockey League. At the very least, it'll be middle six forward, most likely a third liner at the very least on a lot of teams, right? If he gets that consistency and figures out, you know, that two-way game, which you kind of alluded to, then even if that production is at that 40-point pace, but because of the way he plays, the energy he brings, how well he can play on the four-check, if he figures out how to play within that team game, then he'll be a legitimate top six guy that gives you a lot of value, right? So so I think the starting point here is you have a player who's going to be useful, useful for you one way or another. And ultimately, what makes it very unlikely he goes anywhere, it's, number one, he's on an entry-level contract, and this team needs players to perform an entry-level contract at least for the next couple of years here, right? And having a guy make less than a million dollars and potentially being able to give you top six production, I think that's too valuable for you to pass up. The only way I can see this team moving on from a player like Niels Hoaglander is if they're moving him for another player on an entry-level contract that's similar with a different position that they just may like better. It's a bit of a sideways move, but it's more about fit and stylistically what they think of a guy, right? And maybe they just they may feel potentially that for the game they want to play, he may not be ideal for them. Like, I'm just saying, like, hypothetically, if that's the case, I can see them moving him for somebody else that's on an entry-level contract that fits what they want to do that's also a decent player. The other thing I can see is if you have cap space and you're looking to add a significant player who's young, he would be an asset that would be very intriguing alongside of you being able to take on salary for somebody else. But the Canucks would have to clear salary for that to even be a possibility. So any way right. you slice it for, with Niels Hoaglander, yeah, the possibility of course exists. He he may get traded just like anybody else might get traded. But I think just what I just mentioned makes it unlikely. So 
The question is more about how does he fit here next year and how do you get him to take that next step? It's, uh, you know, he, I feel like there was some good things with, with him and Elias Pettersson. Um, you know, they certainly, some of the underlying metrics suggested uh, things were trending in the right direction for them. Obviously, Hoaglander's scoring wasn't really coming around, and that was a bit of an issue when you have Pedersen starting to go. You want some offense around him to really maybe make the most of that. But I, I guess the wonder I have is if you go into next training camp and that's one of your top three lines penciled in uh, or, you know, Nils Hoaglander is penciled into the left wing of Elias Pettersson. Is that an ideal situation to start next season with to get the most out of Elias Pettersson? Mm-hmm. That that's kind of where the question comes down to for me, um, because I did like a lot of what they did, but at the end of the day, production is what rules the day and they didn't have enough production together. And Nils Hoaglander wasn't producing enough to really be a, fixture next to Elias Pettersson it's just up to Nils Hoaglander I guess to earn that spot again and then if he should he's got to prove that he deserves to stay there but he was given that opportunity and the production wasn't there to really say we can count on that for next season one and I think one of the things that happened last year too was Nils Hoaglander had a chance to make this team but it wasn't like he was promised a spot on this team he showed right. up in training camp last year and was clearly better than any other option they had vying for that same position. So he clearly had to make the team. Like, how do you not put him on the team when he's clearly better than the other options? And we were in Abbotsford yesterday and we had a chance to sit down and talk to Stan Smeal. And one of the things that Steamer talked about was if you're going to keep guys in the minors, you also have to have players above them that they aren't better than. Because it's hard for you to keep a guy down if you know he's your best chance to help you out on the big club, right? So had the Canucks had more depth up front, like potentially, like, you know, and, and I'm not trying to make this about Toffoli, but just hear me out for a second. If the Canucks, let's say, had brought Toffoli back last year and say leave 2 on a cheap contract, Niels Hoganan probably doesn't break camp with the team. Right. And is it better for him to spend some time in the minors and then figure it out and then come to the NHL? And he's more, you know, say better positioned to be successful, perhaps. Right. Like you can make that argument that could have been the case. So I think the lesson here is, even though the regime has changed, that moving forward in the future, when they have similar players coming up that could potentially make the team, this team isn't going to be relying or thinking, OK, this guy could come in and help us. We want to put players ahead of them. And if they come in and beat those guys that are purely ready, OK, great. This guy has to play in the NHL. But if not, there's no such thing as a guy spending too much time in the minors, especially when he hasn't spent a lot of time there at all to begin with. Right. So I think the lesson here, too, is as good as Niels Hoganotter was as a rookie, he got to learn learn in the NHL. And this year, when the stakes were a little bit higher, a new coach came in, the expectations were a bit different. The, the question was, well, you played in the NHL, but how come you can't? You haven't figured out the details yet? It's like you've put the cart ahead of the horse here, and you know we need you to take a step back to figure out what you need to do to be successful and to be reliable. And that's something he obviously didn't really grasp last year despite playing in the NHL. So I think from a developmental aspect, that's a big lesson here, something to look forward to in the future about how this team's going to handle young players, whether it's Rathbone, Lockwood, Klimovich or anybody else coming through the ranks here. But as far as Hoaglander goes next year, you've already made your bet in the NHL with him, right? At this mm-hmm. point, I don't think it makes any sense to send him down. So next year, if it doesn't work with Pedersen, 
It probably is Bo Horvat. Like, at least, you know, with him and Bo, it's worked. But again, it comes back to his details. He cleans the details up. I think he's going to be a good hockey player. Yeah, and you see the the good that he can bring. Um, if he brings and can work out some of those details, maybe Nils Hoaglander is just a really solid middle six player for the Canucks for a long time. You know, when you mentioned that, Stan Smeal was a guest on the show yesterday. You can, of course, listen back on the podcast, live on location at the Abbotsford Canucks game, Satyar Shah and Israel Fair. And here's what Steamer had to say about letting players marinate in the AHL. The player knows when he's ready. Uh, and I think uh, the coaching staff know when they're ready. Um, but I think the biggest thing, and for us as an organization, and that to be able to do that, you got to have the depth yeah. within your organization. And I don't think... When you don't have that depth, then you're rushing players. And that's what we don't want to want to get into. We want to get into where we're going to have that depth, where we'd be able to keep a yeah. player a little longer so that player is comfortable and confident taking that next step. I feel organizations talk about this stuff often, Sat. Uh, it's not the first time you've heard something like that, whether it's with the Canucks or another team, but... The theory is often there. It's just in practice, teams seem to have a hard time building out that depth. And certainly the Canucks in recent years haven't been able to do that. Nils Hoaglander rushing right through, getting onto the main roster. McCann, Vertanen, I mean, you can go down the list. It's it's happened more than a few times that guys have been penciled in for, for decent roles here over the last number of years. If you're going to have that philosophy, you really have to commit to it, to allowing players to marinate at the NHL level to really get some pro experience before jumping to the NHL level. Well, absolutely. And I think part of this also kind of comes down to a simple fact in life. And anything you're doing in those formative years, whatever that is, right? Like whether it's your first stages of playing hockey, first time playing, you know, in the CHL, then AHL, then NHL, like especially those early parts of how you adjust to a new league, that's kind of the formative era of it. And I remember talking to Aldi a lot about this, you know, uh, back in the day, and I still talk to him every once in a while about, you know, how development kind of works. You build up bad habits, they're really hard to break, right? And if you kind of get away with doing certain things for a few years, and then you don't, it's going to be hard for you to kind of break it down and then figure it out again. That's why a guy like Luke Shen, for instance, that's why we give him so much credit for being able to reinvent himself, right? And, and fight through it and figure it out and then come back and have another resurgence in his career in his 30s, right? And, and a lot of guys can't do that. It's hard for them to break those habits and then become something else, right? You become kind of who you are as a player. And that's how players and young play, prospects oftentimes can get ruined. There's such a thing as players working through it and getting better as time goes on. But I really think those early formative kind of years in the NHL, the first couple of years, two or three, really do matter in terms of building you into who you are, how you get through each and each and every shift, right? And I think if if you don't learn the right things right off the bat, it gets hard for you to figure that out as time goes on here, right? And that's something that I'm going to be keeping an eye on with this new regime in the future. It's not just about bringing in, bringing in talented players. It's how do you ensure they become good players and how do you ensure they reach their potential? And develop players into different roles for your lineup, whatever that may be. You know, we know that they, they're trying to do that with a Will Lockwood, but 
You know, it's something that is the reality of an NHL team. And we've seen it with Pittsburgh, how they've consistently found guys to fill roles on their roster through uh, college free agency, just developing guys in the AHL. Some of them have hit big, but others, you know, have just hit at a smaller rate down further in their lineup, being good defensive players, good penalty killers, whatever that may be. You know, there's a lot of different ways you can categorize development. And the Canucks really are trying to take a look at how to do that better uh, in the next couple of years with this new regime. So Nils Hoaglander's season may be over. And uh, some some really good texts coming in. Before we move on, I did want to get to a couple of them from our live listeners. Tavi, Nils Hoaglander is one of the most skilled forwards on this team and potentially up there for the NHL. I think once he can figure it out, he can be really good. Another one uh, is saying uh, Jeff and East Hill, maybe half of the problem playing PD was Hoaglander. I think fairly decently, not the best goal finisher, obviously, but definitely set up Pedersen and wasn't playing too well. So points could be a lot different. PD was playing a lot better later on. Uh, so that's from uh, Jeff and he's still referencing Pedersen's struggles to score but uh, that's kind of when Pedersen started to come out of it as well. Um, just uh, didn't really work out for Nils Hoaglander's mm-hmm. production. Right. And uh, one thing I will say, because Greg mentioned too, uh, he, he keeps saying, don't play Pedersen with Bo. It's about who plays Pedersen. We all agree. Pedersen has to play center. And long term, the question remains, who is the ideal winger for him on this team? Is it Hoaglander? Is it Pitkolzin? Is it Besser? Is it Garland? Like, we're not quite sure. I think the... The way that they're lined up right now with Pedersen playing on Bo's wing is simply a product of we're trying to find any way to win hockey games yeah. and stay in this playoff race, right? It's and, necessity. And given the given the uh, the the availabilities of the forwards they have right now, that's just what they think is the is the best way to get get results. Yeah. No. Uh, absolutely. Uh, all right. So Jason Dickinson is uh, practicing with the big club again. I think. A lot of people look at that and are like, oh, okay, great. Uh, It's not exactly been a great first impression for Jason Dickinson on a lot of Canucks fans. What are the options moving forward for the Canucks with Jason Dickinson? Boy, like that's the uh, interesting one here. That was the right? uh, Yannick Hansen. Oi, oh, oh, hey. I almost did the oh, hey. <laughs> almost <laughs> both. <laughs> well, there I mean, it is. And. and it's a, it's a pickle, right? It really is. Now, one thing I don't want to see, and I've, I've seen people mention this, and I, and I understand because the it's not a hard hit against you. Uh, buying him out already, I just think you know why even have some dead money on the on on your cap? Like give it one more year before you you know venture down that road, even though the cap is going to cost you less than a million if you do end up buying him out. But I think that what you do is you try to see if you can find a hockey deal and find a player that maybe fits what you want to do more that struggled elsewhere that has a similar amount of salary, right? Like. You know, can, can you pull something like that off potentially? Outside of something like that, your best option might just be try to bring him back and see if it works in a different role next season with a fresh slate with the with the new regime here. Like, because I don't know if you have any other options really. Can he play center? Like, I that's mean, probably the biggest off season question with Jason Dickinson. You brought him in here to play center, hasn't been able to really do it at a successful rate. So can he play center? That's the biggest question about Jason Dickinson over the course of the summer that the Canucks have to answer. I think he can play center. Like, I think he's capable of doing it. The question is, 
why did it not work in Vancouver? Like, was it just, hey, he got off to a bad start and then it just wasn't working and then he just simplified things on the wing and just worried about defense and, and crashing and trying to win puck battles or whatever? But he's rangy. He moves well. He has good defensive awareness, right? He's got a good stick. He understands what to do. Like, there's a lot about his game that I do like. It's just really odd how, how it hasn't worked at all. Like, I think he can play center. I'm just not sure why it's not working here. I, I know in the faceoff dot, he's not great. But under Boudreaux, we've seen guys improve. And I think that's something he could improve on. Like, I think he still is capable of playing center. I just, I'm, I'm baffled at why it's been so bad here in Vancouver. Often, you know, you look at what happened on the ice when, when Jason Dickinson was playing. I mean, he did not fit on the penalty kill. He was one of the reasons the penalty kill was struggling so much at the start of the year. Uh, definitely that was an issue uh, with the role that he was given on this team. Um, but like, oftentimes, you know, just like not a lot happened, which, you know, for a fourth line player, that's that's probably a good thing. But for the amount of money he's being paid, you're going to need a little bit more. You know, he's you don't want him to just be a guy like, Hey, when you go out there, we don't want anything that we, we don't want any goals scored against us. And and that was often the case. Um, but you got to bring more if you're making close to 3 million bucks. And that's, uh, that's the conundrum the Canucks find themselves in with Jake and Jason Dickinson. I think there's a lot to figure out about this supporting cast. I don't think it, there's like complete turnover here though. Sad, you know, the, like there's, Dickinson, even Pullman to a certain extent. Like, I think there's players in there. It's just how are they used? What are that role? What's that role that is defined for them? And how do you maneuver around the rest of the roster that has them slot into a place that's a little bit more easy Mm -hmm. for them to succeed in? I think that's maybe one of the bigger questions that Rutherford and and Alvin have to answer because guys like Dickinson and Pullman – there's term there. There's a, not a hugely significant salary, but you know, it's a decent number. Well, combined, it's going over to five be... million between Pullman and Dickinson. Right. So you you've just basically like you're not selling these things, or you're not moving these players unless you're maybe attaching something to them, or you're taking something back. I I wonder if that's a buy low situation or. Uh, this just doesn't make a ton of sense for us to move off of these players unless uh, something just falls into our lap that we really like. Well, you know, once you get into the offseason, you have more options, right? And that's why I think when it comes to these trades that Canucks are considering, it's not just about maximum value. You want to get maximum value, but it's also if you can't get maximum value as far as straight-up assets, what else can you do to maximize the value of the player, right? And I think, for instance, let's just say for argument's sake, you're not getting that package you want for Connor Garland. But could you make that into a bigger deal where you attach Jason Dickinson and still get the same value back that people are offering, but you find a way to shed that money to and you get something else thrown into the deal? I think those are the types of things come this offseason you can explore a bit more readily. Maybe you can get that ultimate prospect you want or ultimate you know, uh, asset that you want from one of these players you're looking to move. But could it help you offload more money to give you more flexibility? That might be an option that you entertain, right? But at the end of the day, I think, I think Tucker Pullman is easier to move 
than a Jason Dickinson after a tough season because he's still a right-hand defenseman, right? And those guys are yeah. always sought after. And even though he has some term, I think it's easier for you to potentially find a taker there. But for a centerman who's making over $2.65 million and can't really play center or hasn't played center, has six points in over 40 games, and is being thoroughly outplayed and uh, outproduced by Yuho Lamico, who's making league minimum, essentially, who has 15 points in 61 games instead of the six that Jason Dickinson has. I mean, you can find those guys on the scrap heap, it seems like. Yeah. So why would you go out and get Jason Dickinson? I think unless you make a greater hockey deal where he's a part of it, or you're taking something on and he's part of going out, something going out the door, you're not offloading that money for nothing. Or you're not getting an asset back in return. Yeah, and you know they moved Hamannick when nobody thought they could be able to. So yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, not <laughs> yeah, n- not out of the realm of possibility that that Pullman uh, would would be uh, sought after by by some other teams. Um, I, I do think at the end of the day, uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, I don't think it's the worst idea to bring them back and hope for better results than you had this year for both of those players because they're not too old. And I do think that there's more for them to offer, maybe if they're a bit more settled in their current situation here in Vancouver. Uh, The supporting cast, a big part of today's discussion with a lot of news and notes, Dickinson and Pullman back practicing with the Canucks should be back in the lineup, maybe as early as Sunday against the Vegas Golden Knights. Nils Hoaglander season potentially done as uh, his injury is not looking so great. Another player that has been a big part of the supporting cast is Connor Garland. He's really been going through it. The scoring slump is becoming a main headline right now as the Canucks get ready to take on the St. Louis Blues. We'll discuss that and bring Don Taylor into the conversation next. It is Canucks Central on Sportsnet 650. Yeah, it's Canucks Central, Dan Richo and Satyar Shaw. We are a presentation of Grip Auto Entire. Quality service and friendly advice waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Uh, lots of storylines going into tonight's matchup for the Canucks against the St. Louis Blues. But one that's become a big topic of conversation lately, sad as we've been chatting a lot about the supporting cast is Connor Garland, who has not scored for the Vancouver Canucks since their 7-1 victory over the Calgary Flames way back on February 24th. Are the alarm bells ringing around Connor Garland right now? He, I mean, I want to say alarm bells, and we spent some time on this on yesterday's show as well, kind of breaking down what his season's been like. What I see more than anything here is... Two things. Is he actually able to be a higher-end guy, or is he always going to kind of be a guy that's, you know, going to play second-line minutes, not really be on the power play, and be around that 15-minute range, maybe 16 minutes, and on a good year will give you 20, 24 goals, maybe push the 60 points, but usually a 40, 50-point type of guy, right? Like, like maybe, maybe that's what he is, and that's fine, but there's no higher ceiling to it and that does that leave you wanting with the salary do you expect more i mean it's fair the salary for a guy that gets that type of production but is it really what you want as far as pushing the envelope and the bigger question i have more than anything because i like Connor garland and would like to see him work out here but does the organization see a fit with him? You see Boudreaux's comments, right? Like, my bigger question isn't so much about can Connor Garland be an effective hockey player? I think he can be, even if he's never a first-line type of guy. I'm just not sure how they view him internally under this new regime, whether that be the coaching staff or the front office. 
We often talk about Sat. You know, it's not just about the raw production. Like, you can't just evaluate every player based on their goals and assists. And I'm sure some people are yelling in their cars right now, listening on Apple CarPlay or whatever it is they're listening on, and being like, oh, you guys do that all the time. It's like, of course. You know, production is a big part of the conversation. It matters, yes. It, it does matter. But one thing Connor Garland does do most nights is win his matchup and do it at a pretty good rate. Uh, like, at 5-on-5 five five this year, with Connor Garland on the ice, the Canucks have outscored opponents 42-29. to 29. That's a that's a hard player to move on from if you're getting that sort of result, even if the goals and assists aren't really there for him all the time. Yeah, man. I, th- I think some of that is kind of jumping the shark as far as, you know, I, I get the criticism. I understand. Like, we can talk about his fit and is he really producing as much as he needs to and him being a bad player. Like, he's clearly not a bad hockey player. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a good find for the Canucks, but is it as good as they would have hoped for, I think, is more the question mark around Garland. Let's bring in our next guest. He joins us weekly here on Canucks Central. It is Don Taylor, Donnie and Dolly. You watch it on Czech TV Monday through Friday from 10 to noon. What's happening, Donnie? Well, a lot of Garland talk uh, this week, uh, certainly. Boudreaux talk and, and Garland talk. And, um, I just have a hard time, you know, when I, when I hear the criticism about him, just watching him and, and, you know, you mentioned some deep stats there and uh, I'm not really surprised at that. He just, he just works really hard. He just works really hard. I think the thing is with him, sorry to jump into this guys, by the way, I'm doing fine. All but good. I, I think, yeah, I, I think the thing is with him that the mistakes he makes in, in, you know, overhandling the puck, the things that Bruce Boudreaux has pointed out, I think at the very least they're correctable. And if somebody gets, gets to him, and convinces him to play another way from that point view, then I, I think everything will be fine. It's it's, it's not like the things that he's he, he's doing it will never ever get better. I think they're not. I'm not going to say easily correctable because it's not like he's 18 anymore. But they're they're definitely something that uh, that I think he can fix fairly easily. Fairly easily, maybe not easily, but fairly easily. I'm with you, man. Like, I like Connor Garland as well. Like, we talked about him. The bigger question, too, like, my, the only question I have more than anything is how does the organization view him and what is his fit here, right? Like, there's parts of his game I want to see improve and, and all that sort of stuff. But the bigger question is how does the regime view him? Because I think it's fair to say that not that Boudreaux doesn't like him, I wouldn't even go far as saying he's not the biggest fan, but it's clear he does, he's not enamored with the player. Yeah, and yet he's got him on that line that's been getting defensive matchups yeah. lately uh, with, with Miller and Pearson. So he must he must like something about him. I think earlier in the season he was getting to the net more, and, and I think what happens in the NHL, I know what happens in the NHL, and you'll see it all the time with Garland, is that he'll circle the entire offensive zone with the puck. And you know what the, the, the defense says about that? They say, go ahead. They, they, they don't mind that at all. And I think what he's got to do is get, you know, Get uses teammates more, and Boudreaux said that the other night, and get to the front of the net. Now, I know some people will say, well, what are you talking about? He's four foot nine. That's not going to happen. He was doing that earlier in the season, and he, he's, he's capable of, of doing it. He's fearless, but he, wasn't, he hasn't been doing it lately. So, like I say, those are things that I think he can correct. You know, uh, Yannick Hansen was on the station yesterday, and, and he does a lot of hits with us, and 
Yesterday, he talked about the difference between uh, media coverage here in, in Vancouver to what he experienced in San Jose. And here in Vancouver, you know, he said the media would dwell on on the negatives like, hey, you haven't scored in a bunch of games. What's what's going on with you? Despite the fact that, you know, maybe the Canucks had won a bunch in a row and Daniel Sedin had four points on the night. <laughs> uh, but they're asking about the guy who's who's slumping, whereas in San Jose, they're often looking at a at a positive story. Um you know, just from a, you've been around a long time, Donnie. How do you view the way Vancouver media talks about the team? Well, you know, and, and I love Yannick Hansen. He's so good. I, I, I honestly, like talking to him in the past, I, I didn't realize just how analytical he is and just how good he is uh, to talk to. But yeah, the, the coverage here, I think, tends to be negative, And maybe that has something to do with, you know, what's happened since 1970 you know, over 50 years ago. Uh, so there, there is that. If I'm, if I'm in charge of the organization, and yeah, okay, it does tend to be negative. There hasn't been a whole lot of winning here. But what I say is, guys, you're in a Canadian market. You're smart enough to know uh, what to expect. So, so there's that. And would you really rather have it like it is in San Jose or other markets where it's not love, it's not hate, but there's some indifference there? Enjoy it. It, you know, like like people here care, and sometimes that means they're going to be negative. But I'd rather have a market that cares than a market that that doesn't. So it's it's they're not going away. It's a fun market. It can be a fun market to play in. Enjoy it. And I don't understand why regimes in the past don't emphasize that more. No, I, I'm I'm I don't I don't disagree with any of what you just mentioned, yeah. Donnie. And I think one one of the things that is interesting because you see the social media age, and I think on Twitter and everything, there's yeah. there's obviously more negativity. But this thought of okay, there is more negativity now in the market than there's ever been. I mean, go back to like it's funny. Like, you look back at some of the headlines in the papers uh, about the Canucks in the '80s and the '90s, <laughs> and you know, you, you know, you remember the Neil McCrays and you know the former broadcasters, what they would say and what they would do and stuff like that. Like, I, I don't think, I don't think this the the negative slant that goes out there is anything that's really new to the market. Like, you go back like twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years, even. No chance. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the social media is there. Okay, it's fine, but. It's it's maybe expanded the negativity to other areas, but let's go back to the '80s. I was there in the room, you know, going to all the games, reporting on the games, and the media was negative then. And here's here's what else was happening: nobody was showing up to the games. So uh, you know, at least now you've got negativity, but people are showing up. It was way worse in, in the '80s. Other than '82, they weren't winning until Pat Quinn came along, and even the first couple of years there, they, they didn't win. Not only was the media negative, they weren't winning, and people weren't showing up to games at a time when you could go and see Gretzky play on a regular basis in the same division. Lemieux came into town. Calgary Flames had a good t- uh, team back then. I can remember going to games, and there the, the building was half full. So it was way worse then because you did have the negative media, mostly because they weren't winning, and you also had no one showing up. It was those were real dark times. This is to me, even with social media, which you don't have to take part in. Uh, this this is nothing compared to that. Yeah, and I think um, you know players should know that it's part of the business that they are going to be criticized. 
it, it comes down to a question of is the criticism fair or not? And hey, you, you don't have a goal in 15 games. Uh, Connor Garland might be expecting a few questions on on why it hasn't really been coming for him. Uh, all right, um, you talk about Bruce Boudreau off the top. He's, we've talked about this. We asked Patrick Alvin after the the trade deadline, you know, and and he was basically uh, we're we're going to look at that in the off season, a new contract for Bruce Boudreau. Uh, do do you? See a reason why the Canucks wouldn't continue with with Bruce Boudreau? I, I really don't, because he's injected this organization with wins and energy, which they, they didn't have before. He has he has a winning record here. Uh, you just know he's popular. You can feel it. I'm talking about popular amongst the the customers, the, the people who buck up. Um, there's a lot of positivity surrounding this team since he's been coaching. I the only thing that I, I can think of is that you know he was hired before rutherford my understanding was that rutherford gave him the okay but is he really his guy is he patrick alvin's guy i'm not so sure the other factor that nobody talks about is that bruce is 67 and uh, does, does he want to continue now i i know he loves hockey but you know he's not the i think he is the oldest coach in the national hockey league does he want to continue on what could very well be on, on a team that could very well be uh, rebuilding with the focus on rebuilding does he want to continue there are a lot of factors here and, and i was saying this on our show today this is just so canuck that they've got this coach here who has injected <laughs> life into the organization and and we've got this smoke around him that says to us he might not be back are you kidding like really <laughs> yeah like only in vancouver like, like, I mean, here I am being a part of the negative media again, but this could only happen here. Like, well, keep the guy. Come on. Has has a coach come in to the fanfare of Boudreaux in this organization before? Like, even Pat Quinn, when he came, like, it wasn't like they were successful right away and everything like that. I mean, Roger Nielsen had his moment, but that wasn't like they were successful right away. Like, have we ever seen a coach come in to this type of fanfare and this much adulation from the fan base? I would say Crawford. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mark Crawford came in with a pretty heavy resume, you know, having uh, worked with the Avalanche, won a, as a real young coach, having, having uh, worked with the Avalanche and won a 96 Team Canada coach, although there was the Gretzky decision on the shootout. There, there was that, but he was there. He was a hot commodity uh, when he joined the, the Canucks. So I would say Mark Crawford. And, and, and by and large, other than, you know, Having a few goaltending issues, he he lived up to expectations in terms of delivering in terms of delivering really exciting uh, hockey. He would probably be uh, be uh, my guy if I, I had to pick one. Remember when Pat Quinn joined too? His his first coach was not himself; it was Bob McCammon. And uh, the, he, he, Bob was the late great Bob McCammon. Great, if you ask me, he was a real good choice because he could handle the negative media really well. He was a real smart ass, and I mean that as a compliment. He was a good choice, but. Crawford was the guy. Crawford was the guy that came in with quite a lot of fanfare, and you could even say that Mike Keenan came in with a lot of fa- fanfare. It was bizarre fanfare, but there was definitely a lot of attention paid to the Canucks at that time because of who they hired behind the bench. You know, the other thing about this too is it's not like uh, Boudreau is the interim or the assistant that's getting his first crack at an NHL head coaching gig that you're just trying to play out the string of the season with. I mean, the guy's been around the block a few times. He's got one of the better records in NHL history as, as a head coach. It's not like it's, it's a guy who's 
got no track record yeah. previously. Like Boudreaux is different from the other type of midseason hire where you're just taking an interim or an assistant to try and play out the string. Like Boudreaux is brought in here to turn this team around, and he has done that. Plus, he's got the pedigree of being one of the better coaches over the last decade. Yeah, and I think people are, you know, when you look at Willie D, and then when you look at Travis, you know, first-time NHL coaches, I think people are a little tired of that. So you've got this uh, this gentleman with a really strong regular season record. The knock against him is he doesn't do that well in the playoffs. That he he never won a Stanley Cup as as a head coach. Well, who cares? I just want, you know, if you're a fan, you just want to see them get to the playoffs, and then let's see how Bruce does. It seems they're on a track where if he was to stick around, they got a pretty good chance of getting into the postseason. And I, I, I would love to see him get another crack at the playoffs. What a story that would be if he did really, really well in the playoffs and, and just added to his popularity in this uh, town. I know it's short term, but he is a popular guy. So you know, hey, okay, he, he doesn't do well in the playoffs. This team just wants to get to the playoffs, <laughs> yeah. and Bruce Boudreau has proven that he can get the team, get teams there. Well, and, and it's so interesting, right? Because you're right. I mean, don't put the cart ahead of the horse. First, get yes. there, and let's let's worry about that afterwards. Once you get to the postseason, and this notion of okay, and I'm not saying this is what the front office is thinking, but this idea of is it better to go with a younger head coach for a younger team that you can kind of plot out for the next six or seven years? But which coaches last more than three to four years nowadays in yeah. NHL, anyways, Donnie? Yeah, and, and then you look at some of the coaches that are doing well right now. I'll, I'll, I'll mention Boudreaux, but the, the real revelation right now in, in coaches to me is Daryl Sutter, who is the opposite of every. It goes against everything everybody thought the game was going, the direction everybody thought the game, the game was going, and he's it's really working in Calgary, obviously. And then the, the personnel is there as well. But I mean, he has a lot to do with some of the players that that are there, um, and and that that seems to be working. Out. And like, I, I don't know if there's one formula or one trend that you can go with. If a guy comes in and he starts winning like Boudreaux has, keep him. It's simple. Don Taylor, our guest, uh, Nils Hoglander's season uh, looks to yeah. be over as. Uh, uh, Bruce Boudreaux alluded to today, the injury is uh, likely long-term and likely ending his season. How do you view Nils Hoaglander's sophomore year? Well, um, it got frustrating for him, obviously, when, you know, when Bruce uh, started coaching and his minutes started going down. And then he started to, to notice uh, some of the things that you know he wasn't doing, that, that sort of thing. But then, you know, this, this injury... Uh, that is reportedly, I don't know what you guys are hearing, reportedly a groin problem. You wonder if that was, if that was the bane of his existence. It, it, was that the problem? I still like his hustle. Uh, when I go to games, I really, I really notice him. I don't think he's a guy you give up on. Uh, I, I, there's skill there. Maybe he got rushed in too fast. Top six in his rookie rookie season. That's not necessarily his fault it spoke more to the depth of the organization but I think he fits what they're trying to do when he's at his best yeah I'm with you and you know the fact that he's an entry-level contract too for next season and how he kind of fits in here long term I think he's one of those guys that you have to give another chance to and and see what kind of works out with him and I I think what's what's fascinating though overall now that the Canucks have a little bit more cap space with the cap going up an extra million for next year right the Canucks were able to move out Hamannick they're not bringing Tyler Mott back there is a bit more flexibility so I think it's really interesting heading into this offseason that if they're able to move one or one more contract here 
Like they may be able to do some interesting things this offseason if they're if they're able to get to that point because having about sixteen and a half million or so in cap space and only having to fill out six spots, including Besser, that doesn't seem too bad as far as having breathing room. So they may not be that far away from having some meaningful space here if they can move one guy out. And I don't think it's going to be a guy like Hoaglander because he's on an entry level contract. Why would you yeah. want to move him out? Yeah, exa- exactly. And uh, look, I'm not please don't anybody you know. Uh, you know uh, get upset with me, but I keep thinking of, and this is not where the Canucks are by any means, but I keep thinking of how bad Colorado was not that long ago and how they, how they turned things around quite, quite quickly. And they got rid of some pretty good players and Ryan O'Reilly left Colorado, Matt Duchesne left Colorado, no matter what you think of him, a good, good player. And they made some real bold moves and got pretty damn good, pretty, pretty quickly. And we all remember 2019, it seems like yesterday, that draft here in Vancouver, they had two first-round draft picks, you know, partly because they had been bad for a while. That wasn't that long ago. So things, things can, can turn around uh, fairly uh, quickly. You just want uh, them to have a focus, which they haven't had for a long time. Not this era. I'm talking about the Canucks as a whole, not this regime, but the, the, the Canucks as a whole. And you want them to have the right guy, guy in charge. Yeah, behind the bench as I make my plea for Bruce Boudreaux again. <laughs> uh, Donnie, one last thing before we let you go. Patio wants to know on the Dunbar Lumber text yeah. line, uh, what is your favorite flavor of potato chip? You know what? I don't know what it is, but lately I, I've been loving salt and vinegar. I, I just, I, I know it's very old school. I know a lot Ooh. of people don't like it, but you got to give salt and vinegar this. It's been around for a long time. <laughs> like I know a lot of people get turned off by just how sour it is, but look at the yep. lasting power. It's been it's been around for a long time. I don't know. I I just there's something about it. It's like a good punch in the face. So I'll go salt and vinegar. Uh, all right, salt and vinegar. Donnie's a big fan. Uh, thanks for this, Donnie. Yeah, it's a punch in the face. It's Will Smith endorsed. <laughs> <laughs> endorsed. Love yeah. it. Thanks, Donnie. Anytime, guys. Love it. Thank you. There it is, Don Taylor making a uh, Will Smith joke before he's out. Yeah, everybody's got the Will Smith jokes nowadays, right? Um, yep. But, I mean, it's a story that doesn't stop. Like, I, I, like, I mean, it's it's a slap I don't stop seeing. It's like every everywhere. <laughs> better, uh, better hit to the face, uh, Will Smith or Taylor Hall? Oof. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Probably Will Smith. Will Smith. I mean, the Taylor Hall one. I don't know. Do we want to get into that? <laughs> I saw a lot of rage about it, and, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, Leaf fans wanted a 17-game suspension for, for Taylor Hall. Oh, give was, me a break. Uh, it's a bit much. Bit yeah, much. What, what, what Taylor Hall did was stupid, right? But, like, come yep. on. I saw people kind of mentioning it. It wasn't, it wasn't Bertuzzi more, like, relax. Like, that's not what happened here. Like, it's, that's mm-hmm. not what happened. I understand those things can go sideways and yada, 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 an escalation, and it could get worse. you got to be careful. I thought a fine was... was was the right move there i mean to me that's not a suspension worthy play uh it was kind of dumb probably should have been dealt with more in the game yes. but uh like game misconduct are... that would taken like you know five yeah. you know double minor whatever um but uh things got out of hand there it is uh canucks central dan riccio and satyar shaw uh, a couple of texts coming in on uh, connor garland garland gotta move quicker Tends to look really busy, but not get much done is another thought. 
on Garland and Ian Taylor. Garland just had to get out of the Arizona fiasco, so he's out. We'll do his dirty work, blue collar, and rush at first chance back to a U.S. team when he is done. Uh, he just signed a five-year contract with the Vancouver Canucks. So, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he no, ain't moving no, unless he's traded. No, and you're not putting those guys on waivers. Nobody's picking those guys up, right? Like the only the only relief you get by putting those guys on waivers is if you do. After they clear waivers, you send them down to the minors, and then just over a million of their cap hit comes off the books. But then you have to replace them with a player who's making at least league minimum. So really, you're saving at best 300 k against the cap by making that type of a move. So unless a player is really bad and you really got to get rid of them, that's why guys with salary, oftentimes it doesn't make sense to put them on waivers. Like You're not really getting yeah. real relief doing so. No. Um, coming up, we've got... Kevin Woodley, our goalie guru, is in for his Wednesday check-in. Kevin Woodley on why the Canucks are splitting Halak and Demko for these games against St. Louis. If Philly Huso has passed Jordan Bennington and much more. It is Canucks Central. Canucks Central Wednesday, overrated, underrated. As uh, we do it every Wednesday. People getting the buzz for overrated, underrated, Sat. Good times, man. People are eager. I mean, it's funny overrated. because pe- people are so eager for the mailbag, too, that they often mistake <laughs> underrated, overrated for a mailbag. We're, we're getting mailbag questions <laughs> on Wednesday for uh, overrated, underrated. But uh, overrated or underrated, Murph's haircut. I think it's underrated. Mm. Murph's got a great haircut. Finally. It was Finally. a long time coming, though, Murph, well, I if you're mean, out there listening. Well, he was. I think he was cutting his own hair for a while, so that never goes well. <laughs> I tried it at one point during the pandemic. Not not a great idea. Just just uh, just throwing that out there. Uh, Kevin Woodley is going to join us. This hour is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company, helping local business since 1892. Uh, as we find out from... The GM meetings, not a ton of news there, Sat, but uh, the salary cap is going up by a million dollars. And, well, it should help the Canucks a little bit. It's going to help every team a little bit since so many are right up against the salary cap going into the offseason. Yeah. uh, I mean, heading into this offseason, just even getting that one million in cap space does help out a lot. But I am so curious to see what happens this offseason. Because when you look around the league, how many teams are capped out and what's going on and all the concerns and everything like that, I mean, how how ahead of it do you have to get this offseason moving cash? Like, how many teams are willing to take on cash? And if you miss that window, like, what happens? That's going to make it that much more difficult for you to right. uh, open up some flexibility. You know, we talk about Myers and Pearson potentially being players that are somewhat movable and may be able to carve out some extra cap space for this Canucks team. But they do have uh, some other question marks that they'll have to deal with uh, before the draft if they're going to be able to do some wheeling and dealing when it comes to creating some cap space, creating some flexibility for the summer. Let's bring in our next guest. It is uh, the great Kevin Woodley, In Goal Magazine, our goalie guru, and also covering the Canucks at NHL.com. Woodley, how's it going? Good, yourselves? Doing fantastic. Um, So Bruce Boudreaux 
starts Halak on Monday and alludes to the idea of not wanting to play the same goalie against the same team in the home and home set with the St. Louis Blues. Is there uh, is there logic to that? Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe that's something he honestly believes in. I guess we'll see as they uh, head into some what home and home with Vegas coming up here. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think you play your best goaltender. I, I think that as much as Thatcher Demko says, it's only we in the media that that talk about um, fatigue and how much can you afford to play him. I think the fact they started Halak in that game is uh, Exhibit A uh, that it is something they're considering. I think that would be what's behind this that decision way before the idea that we don't want to show this team the same guy twice. The Blues have no problem showing them Billy Huso again tonight, in part because the Canucks haven't been able to beat Billy Huso in two games this season. Um, but I think, to me, that's more about uh, potential fatigue and about wanting to rest Thatcher Demko than it is you know, the idea of not showing a team two goalies. And, I, you know, I should say, too, I don't, I'm not, not, that's not meant to be critical of Demko's response uh, to the questions about fatigue. It's the first time the media talked to him in, in a while. And I think that's just sort of, uh, it's almost like a psychological mechanism, right? Like you don't show weakness. You don't talk about being tired. You don't talk about fatigue. You don't walk into the rink with ice bags all over you. You don't show that to your teammates. You don't show that to the public. It's, it's if you've ever I covered the PGA Tour for, for you know, it stops here and, and at, at other places for a few years in a past life. And Mike Weir in his prime never hit a bad shot, right? Like it was always like a green that didn't break the way he expected or a bounce here or a bounce there. It's more, you know, it's more sort of not wanting to speak out loud things, mistakes you made. And in this case, the the idea that he could be tired or worn down. Um, So, but, and yet I I don't see how you look at that decision on Monday night any other way, despite the fact that Yarrow had a, a good game uh, in Denver, a really good game. And we talked about it, right. Going into it, the, the fact that maybe those two performances pre-trade deadline had more to do with the distractions of perhaps Yarrow expecting, maybe hoping to have been traded by that point, and then once the deadline passed and it was no longer an option, um, did a good job of locking in on that game. I thought he was two tough bounces away from maybe being in a 1-1 draw with the St. Louis Blues and Billy Huso on Monday night. Like That first one is just... No, two, ba- two bad bounces on the same play. First off Lockwood stick, and then off the shaft of his own stick over the net. And then yeah, the the Tarasenko goal, I mean, that shot's going wide. It hits mm-hmm. the stick and comes back into play. So that that's a tough bounce. Also, you know, on a hypercritical standpoint, uh, from a goaltending perspective, that stick shouldn't be trailing behind like that. Like, it should be caught up and in front of you. But a um, couple tough bounces there. But otherwise, another game where he was above expected as well just not as good as Billy Husso, who is uh, having himself a hell of a season, especially when he plays Vancouver. Yeah, no doubt about it. He's a high-level player. And before we get to Billy Husso, just as far as every coach is going to be different, and I don't want this to come off as a criticism necessarily or anything, but when Travis was here, it was very much, or at least the way he would put it publicly, the goalie decisions get made by Ian Clark. Who plays, who starts, who gets rest, it all goes through Ian. Uh, how different does it seem under Boudreau with how much Demko is playing? And what does that kind of show as far as how each coach has a different approach to how they handle their goalies and their starts? Uh, that's a good question, actually, Sat. And to be honest with you, I haven't dug in you know, behind the scenes or privately on how those conversations have changed. I haven't asked that question to, to be, to be um, you know, truthful. So I don't have an accurate answer. I do think you've seen Bruce 
refer to Ian and the conversations with Ian about his goaltending decisions. So clearly he still plays a big role in this. Uh, I think that the fact we've seen Ian in the past make decisions where, you know, he would take out a winning goaltender if he saw signs of slippage in their play um, with the whole concept of, you know, rather than have, rolling him back out there, let's say, for example, Monday in St. Louis and getting him at 80% and then potentially tonight getting him at 70%, do you take him out, give a fresh Halaka start and get Thatcher Demko back to 100% tonight? Like those are decisions he made in the past um, when Travis gave him that call. And so my hunch without knowing for sure would be that he would have had a strong voice in that decision on Monday night, however Bruce wanted to spin it. Uh, in terms of why the decision was made. Um, but in terms of final call, I mean, that, that you know, it may be a little more the head coach maybe than it was. I think it was always the head coach, but but by default pretty much just went with what the goalie coach was saying in the past under Travis Green. Not sure if that's still the same dynamic here, but you know, just based on history and based on the way that decision went down this week, it, it, it sort of... Yeah, Smelton looks to me like an Ian Clark type of decision, frankly. So, Vili Husso, um, he's dominated the Canucks and pretty much won over the job from from Jordan Bennington this year. Do you uh, do you see Vili Husso as the the number one man for the St. Louis Blues? Well, tonight's what six of eight. So, yep. You know, in an important time of the year where they were scuffling a little bit. Um, kind of hard to argue otherwise, right? And this, and this is—it's interesting because we had this conversation the last time they were in town. Uh, there was a lot of sort of noise around that tandem uh, coming out of St. Louis, and the the point that I made at the time, and it kind of still stands, is like Billy Huso has been fantastic, but Jordan Bennington hasn't been bad, right? Like Huso actually has adjust, an adjusted save percentage that is equal to Igor Shesterkin right now just slightly above him, actually, and the only one in the league who's even close to Shesterkin. And as this sample size picks up, it was interesting. Last time they came through town, Huso was starting to win that job. But as he played more, like his numbers were off the charts. They started to come back down to earth a little bit, and now they've stabilized. But they've stabilized at a level that's pretty damn good, like top of the league damn good. And so everyone wants to crap all over Jordan Bennington. Well, you know, he's 13th in the NHL. You know, you're paying him to be a number one, and maybe you want him to be a top ten. Uh, maybe you want him to even be a top five at the at the, at the ticket he's making uh, as a $6 million a year goaltender. But he hasn't been terrible. What has been terrible in St. Louis, and um, I'm not sure we've seen that when the Canucks played them to the same degree, but defensively, like both of these goaltenders have two of the lowest expected save percentages in the NHL, down there with Yaroslav Halak. This is not the Blues team that won their Stanley Cup by playing tight defensive hockey. They are way more wide open. They gave up, give up way more looks, and they lean way more heavily on both Huso and Bennington than they did when Bennington won his cup. So, um, like, to me, that's more about the team the Blues are and how good Huso has been bailing them out. Like, he's for, he is what people say, or he has been in a smaller sample, and maybe with less wins, but he's basically been what everyone says Igor Shesterkin has been. Mm. A really good goalie on a really bad defensive team. As a matter of fact, his expected save percentage is like 12 points lower than Igor Shesterkin. So what everyone says the Rangers are and how much they lean on goaltending, that's actually what the Blues are, even more so. 
Well, and you know what I find really interesting, though, is because Huso is an unrestricted free agent, right? And that's a team that is capped out, and they can't keep both guys, right? And they can't pay and hold on to both of them. If you could, and you know, and, and is it possible, if you could move the entire Jordan Binnington contract, would you do that to keep Huso? I think it kind of depends on what you, like, where where Bennington fits in your hierarchy if you're the St. Louis Blues, like in terms of that room and all the dynamics that, that went into winning a cup. But the fact they're already shifting towards him, you know, at a critical time of year for as many games as they have right now tells me that, you know, certainly that possibility is something that they would consider. I think that Bennington, even this year, when you look at these adjusted numbers, is a guy that other teams would be interested in, at least statistically and performance-wise. Like, again, I don't think he's fallen off some cliff here. Uh, he's still a really, really good goaltender. Uh, I'd love to see him in a more predictable environment, like the one the Blues created for their goalies when he won the Stanley Cup. Like, I think he'd be back into that top 10 and maybe even top five conversation around the league. So maybe as, you know, as much as people think that contract's hard to move, it might not be quite that hard. The question is, you know, are you all in on Billy Huso? What you've seen this year, can you expect it to carry forward? And I would suggest the team that has the answer to that more than anyone else is actually the St. Louis Blues. Because what people forget, including myself earlier in the year, was that before Bennington came, you know, not out of nowhere, but pretty close to it to win that Stanley Cup, he was behind Billy Huso on their depth chart. Like, Huso was their goaltender to the future in St. Louis. And so, you know, there's an investment there from the franchise. There's a goalie they know. This is a path they projected for him. Um, it just took a little longer. And so maybe there's more trust from the St. Louis Blues and, and willingness to give Huso term and finances if they can move Bennington than there might be elsewhere around the league where I think there'd be teams interested, but probably maybe even more buyer beware um, from other teams than you would have in St. Louis just because of you know, guys in the past, like Scott Darlings of the world, right, who put up numbers, maybe not to this degree, but good numbers in a 1B role, but then when they were given an opportunity elsewhere to be the guy, just couldn't do it. So I think you'd have hesitation from other teams to go all in on Billy Huso as a number one, and maybe even less so from the Blues, though. So maybe he is better off staying, but as you said, the question becomes, I would assume they'd have to move Bennington to make that happen. Uh, how hard would that be to do? And I guess it would depend... You know, how many teams are looking at the numbers I have in front of me and believe in Jordan Bennington the way I believe he can be as a goaltender? How many teams might be scared off by the, you know, the edge that he comes with, the uh, sort of, you know, you want to go type stuff with other goaltenders and, you know, and, and taking swings at guys. And, you know, I, th- I think there's something about Bennington where he needs that chip on his shoulder. We saw how much he struggled in the bubble without a crowd. Like, I think he plays on that edge and needs to be on that edge to be at his best. I think he's a guy, though, that, you know, as much as we critique some of those antics, um, you know, when you talk to people around the Blues and in that locker room, like it fired them up. In a lot of those games, it led to comebacks. It sparked the team. He's the guy that dragged them into the fight. And so other teams may shy away from that dynamic. I guess the one question I'm not sure of when it comes to this decision for the Blues is, you know, how much do they maybe appreciate that dynamic uh, more than other teams? The... Uh... Move to Minnesota, the big move of the uh, deadline, obviously Marc-Andre Fleury to the Minnesota Wilds. He's uh, stopped 55 of a possible 58 so far in uh, his two starts and both wins. Seems like it's been a pretty easy transition for Flower. 
Yeah, and you know what? There was a lot of reasons to believe that it might be. Um, like, there were there are a lot of different elements when you trade a goaltender this late in the season. We kind of talked about them going into uh, the trade deadline. And, you know, he checked a lot of the boxes. Now, no, he hadn't ever been traded in season, so that's a little bit of a risk. But he's changed teams twice in the last five years after spending his whole year in Pittsburgh, first to Vegas, and then just this season to Chicago. So he's been through that process of having to learn new teammates' tendencies, new systems play in short notice. Not Again, not quite as quick as in season, but he at least checked that box. I think you, you're always wary of goalies that haven't changed teams before and how much harder it might be that first time. That wasn't a problem. Systems-wise, like when he struggled in Chicago for the first month, they get an 871 save percentage, like a 1-7 record, and people are like, well, that's him adjusting to a new team. This is going to be a problem. I think it was just Jeremy Calton's system did not fit him. And again, you know, I talked to Ryan Miller for an article about this. Like The idea that all goalies can play behind any type of chance is silly. Like Yes, all goalies can adjust, but why wouldn't you put the, them behind systems that play to their strengths? And for Flurry, rush chances are not his strength. You put him in end zone situations, that's where he's at his best. Under Colleton, uh, the Chicago Blackhawks were one of the worst rush teams defensively in the NHL. After they switched to Derek King, that changed. They were like fifth best. Minnesota, seventh best. They force teams to play end zone hockey, and that's where Flurry excels. Um, rush chances are where he gets in trouble. So, boom, check that off. Another fit. Uh, biggest adjustments for goalies going from one team to the other. It's not so much learning uh, a new system, because we've all heard hockey players talk about how systems aren't massively different from one to the other. It's about trusting and learning the tendencies of the players executing that system, in particular the defensemen. Not just... You know, it's not just do we take away the pass or take away the shot on a two-on-one. It's when do they pressure, how do they pressure, uh, is it early in the zone, do they try and force it at the blue line and pinch things off there, or do they wait till it's later and closer to you. Some goalies like that because then if the pass comes across, the guy who receives it doesn't have as much time or, in theory, enough as much space because you're cutting down that angle because it's in so tight as a goaltender. Like, there are a lot of different tendencies that you have to adjust to. Screens, the system says, I've got short side looking around the screen as a goaltender. My defenseman has to take away the middle. Okay, that's great. We've talked about this a lot with the Canucks. But is my defenseman actually going to be in that lane? Can I trust him to be there? Those are the types of adjustments that take a little time. And the one good thing for Marc-Andre Fleury is, like, he's so approachable and so fun-loving and so open and so open uh, and welcoming to guys, talking to other guys that have played with him. Like, it doesn't matter that he's a future Hall of Famer and you're a first-year defenseman, if you want to talk about it and talk about private, you can approach him. He's so approachable. And so I think that will also ease his transition. So when you go down a checklist of sort of uh, red flags, uh, warning signs about why a goaltender might not fit with a new team and, you know, in-season switch in short order, like he checked all the boxes on the positive side. And so that doesn't always mean it's going to work. But I think it's got a really good chance to, and I think you've seen in those first two games um, that a lot of those signs we saw going in are already starting to play out in real time. Well, it's certainly working out there. Now, a place that did not make a goalie move, and they were in on Flurry at least to some degree, the two Kyles getting in a fight over it, Davidson and Kyle Dubas, uh, Chicago Blackhawks GM and Leafs GM, over the fact that maybe they did or did not talk about uh, Marc-Andre Flurry trade-wise. We know they stood pat with their goalie situation how much trouble are they in with their goalie situation heading into the postseason this year? 
Uh, well, you know, Mrazek was just sort of looked like he was starting to get his legs under him a little bit, but mm-hmm. now one of them doesn't work, right? And that's the third groin injury on the season already for Peter Mrazek. Um, I'm not a doctor, but if there were betting odds on injuries, I would certainly place one. I'd, I'd place a props bet right now <laughs> on Peter Mrazek and the word hip surgery being mentioned sometime within the next year. Like, anytime you start popping groins that regularly, quite often it's because you're compensating for a problem in the hips. And, and again, it's not always the case, but when we start getting into this many and three in a year, it's certainly something that pops into my mind just because I've seen it so many times before. Uh, Semyon Varlamov, definitely with the avalanche, ended up getting both hips done, and it was just it was just one groin injury after another for him. So... Uh, obviously in the short term, I don't think they'll do anything about it. They'll try and probably rehab it and get him back in there because he was finally starting to play decent hockey for them. Um, but in the long term, and maybe that becomes a relief for them if, it, if it's into next year because they've got him on the books and he hasn't been great for them. But right now, it leaves you really dependent, in my mind, on Jack Campbell coming back from this injury and putting – you know, the last six weeks of play behind him mentally. Um, one of the worst goalies in the league statistically over that six-week stretch before the rib injury, uh, he needs a reset. And I can't remember if I've mentioned this with you guys before, but to me the great irony is if you sort of know Jack or we've sort of gotten to see Jack Campbell's um, personality and, and they love him for it in Toronto, how open he is. Um, but if, if you sort of start to you read between the lines on, on some of that personality – um, the easiest way, like in my mind, the best way to ensure you get Jack Campbell back to himself when he comes back is something I don't think they can do because of how sort of poorly he's played over the last six weeks, but that would be give him an extension, remove all the doubts, all the future doubts. This is a goaltender that has shown that has talked openly about it. Like he just, for lack of a better phrase, he just wants to be loved. And the insecurity of not having a contract next year, uh, I'm sorry, when you see how he interacts with the media, as much as it's all about being in the moment, next save, next shot, like this is a guy who probably has that on his mind. When something goes bad, it's not just, okay, next shot. It's all the ones that went in before. It's that snowball that seems to start rolling downhill on him. And the one thing that would give him the reset they keep talking about giving him mentally, to me, would be a contract extension. But how do you do it at this point, given how the last six weeks have gone? So, yeah, that long-winded answer to an easy question, the Leafs have trouble in goal right now. And, hey, but, hey, you never know. They had an e-bug win again for their AHL team last night, yeah. so anything can happen. <laughs> and they, uh, they've, they've been beaten by an e-bug in recent memory, too, so uh, anything can happen. Uh, before we let you go, uh, every Wednesday we play overrated, underrated, and uh, – this goalie, I think, lately has been uh, probably in the overrated category for some. Uh, his name has now entered the chat for a lot of trade rumors, as many have within the Anaheim Ducks. But how do you rate John Gibson right now? Oh, I, first of all, I think it's in my contract. I'm not allowed to rate any goaltender as overrated. <laughs> the, the, you know, the goalie union, I think it, they wrote it in the fine print, guys. So um, Fair enough, fair fun. enough. Um, you know what? I would lean right now towards, I mean, there were moments this year where it was like, looked like he was back, but again, the consistency, right. And part of that is the team in front of him. 
like the lack of run support that he had up until this season was just like laughable. And talking to mm-hmm. Ryan Miller about just how hard that was on them as goaltenders when every night they went into the game knowing that one might be one too many. Like when you think you have to be perfect every night in that position, that's ah, a tough way to play the game. And so I, I don't think that environment's necessarily been great for him. Um, but the hype that surrounded him and, and sort of the pedigree and then the talk about him being one of the best goaltenders in the NHL for years, uh, you know, I, I think I would have to lean towards that overrated side because it hasn't just hasn't panned out for what for a lot of different reasons. And I think, but the one thing to me, and I've said this from the beginning, um, there's a sliding scale for goaltenders in terms of how much they rely on athleticism and instinct and how much they rely on technique. And Gibson's always been over on the athleticism and instinct side. And that's fine um, because when he's on, he's almost unbeatable playing that way. But over time, it's very hard to be consistent that way. It's also very hard to stay healthy. There are elements in the way he moves where he quite literally pulls his body in different directions. He pulls it apart as he moves, as he makes those reactive type saves. And I think that's what did lead to a lot of the injuries earlier in his career. So uh, to me, you know, we praise Roberto Luongo for the consistency. We're going to put him in the Hall of Fame for his 919, the consistency with which he sort of always stayed at that standard. I've still got Vasilevsky ahead of Shesterkin in my best goalie in the world conversation. Why? Because of that consistency and durability. And those are two things that I don't think we've been able to say about John Gibson. The upside, the ceiling is still as high as anyone. But his ability to stay at a high level, the floor seems to be lower than you would expect for the pedigree and the reputation. And for that reason, I would go overrated. Woodley, you're the best. Uh, Thanks for this as always. We'll talk next Wednesday. I'm going to need you guys to fake a goalie union card and have it all like you know sealed up and shipped to me because they're going to take the real one away for, for having said that. All right. Uh, well, well, we'll try to keep that one under wraps just for us, okay? I know a guy that does good uh, laminates, so we'll get it done for you. <laughs> of course, Appreciate Sat knows it. a guy. <laughs> uh, thanks for this, Woodley. Have a good one, guys. There he is, uh, Kevin Woodley, our goalie guru he uh just kicked off overrated underrated by uh calling john gibson a little bit overrated i love it man but i will say though the saves he made made last night against the stars were were not yeah. overrated those were some incredible saves like gibson is uh he'll he'll make a ton of huge saves and so good and and woodley explains it so well like his athleticism allows him to to make some massive saves but uh, the consistency just hasn't been there yeah over the last couple of years you wonder if he was on a contender would that be different be interesting to see what happens with john gibson this summer all right uh, overrated underrated we do it every wednesday on canuck central that's coming up next if you have a topic that you want sat and i to discuss 650 650 on the dunbar lumber text line poutine overrated underrated i don't know send us in topics like that it is canuck central